Okay. Hey there, this is Glenn Lowry. This is the Glenn Show. I'm with John McWhorter, my regular conversation partner twice a month at the Glenn Show. And we're with Randall Kennedy, professor of law, Michael Klein, professor of law at the Harvard Law School, author of many books. Uh, most recently, Say It Loud, a collection of his essays, which has been reviewed in the New York Times and other places. Uh, Randall is a, is a towering scholar and a figure in uh, letters of African-American political and cultural life has been for many, many years, and we're very, very grateful that he's given us some time to come to the Glenn Show. Thanks, Randy. Thank you for having me on. Randy's an old friend. I first met Randy in the early 1980s when I came to Harvard as a fledgling young professor of Afro-American studies and economics, and Randall would make the trek over from the law school, and we would go and have ice cream because we were both contrarian thinkers in our own way back in the day, Randy. Is, do I get that right? You do. I remember those days very fondly. Ice cream. But <laughs> yeah, you know, it was just an excuse to sit and, uh, and have a chat. You know, I thought it was it's better than having a drink at two o'clock in the afternoon. <laughs> I, I say doing this, I'll let you know, folks, it's not my usual. Well, the audience, John and I go back a long way. We're buddies, so I can, I think, get away with saying this. If John lifts a glass of ice of wine in front of the camera during our podcast, you can be sure it's a calculated move that he's considered very carefully the optics and that he has resolved it in favor of the image management, which you see before you now. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> <laughs> That's Irving Goffman, <laughs> John. He is right. Randy, what are you up to, man? We live in an age of turmoil, of racial reckoning, of Black Lives Mattering, and of uh, an open season on Black people, of a post-Obama, uh, I don't know what to call it, uh, of, of uh, political uh, turmoil over uh, uh, 1619 Project, critical race theory. These are all in your wheelhouse. Uh, and uh, I'm just wondering, I mean, we, we want to take advantage of you coming here to uh, not just talk about the book. I mean, I want you to talk about the book. And I suppose some of your response will be interpreted through essays that are in the book. But uh, what's on your mind? What do you, you know, what, what do you make of what's going on on the racial uh, narrative contestation front in American uh, politics and culture just now? It's a... Um remarkable moment, a very disturbing moment. Um, I mean, you know, on, on the one hand, we have a vice president of the United States who describes herself as a black American. We have a head of the Department of Defense who's a black American. We have, you know, you can take a look at, you know, I think the commandant of West Point is a black American. You can, you, you turn on the television, you go to, you go to universities, you go to various strategic points in American life, big philanthropy, and one sees black Americans um, and who, who are exercising authority and who are moving up and making it possible for other people to move up. So in, in, in one way, we see the continuing upward trajectory that um, John Hope Franklin spoke about, this you know, wonderful history you know, from, from slavery to freedom. On the other hand, 
we are in the shadow of the ascendancy of Donald Trump to the presidency of the United States. I mean, Donald Trump, I would, I would not have thought that a person like Donald Trump would become president of the United States. He becomes president of the United States in the aftermath of Barack Obama. And here we have a person who openly trafficked in racial animus, racial resentment, wasn't coded, it was open. So, and, and, and we're still, you know, in, in the aftermath of that. Um, our democracy, in my view, is uh, in peril. We have a government, it's very difficult for the government to do anything. Uh, we have people who are elected, uh, uh, elected representatives who seem to be willing to call into question the basic, the basic ground rules of our democracy. So I feel, I feel torn and frankly bewildered um, by what's going on. You know, Randall, I wanted to ask you after, after reading your book, you, you expressed great, a certain dismay at the racial situation in the country after Trump was elected. And it seems to me, and I may be misreading you, but it seems to me like you were, you, you were surprised. And I didn't quite understand that because I wasn't surprised that there was a critical mass of white people, one, who were racist, but even more, I think, who didn't prioritize racism to the extent that we might prefer, such that they would elect that man because of his charisma and not care about all the remarks and even just what he is. I, what, you understand where I'm coming from. Why were you surprised? You know, you, you know how it is. Well, maybe I was sentimental. I mean, you know, it may, it may be, maybe my, I, I was surprised, uh, deeply disappointed, and maybe that bespeaks of a, a certain naivete, to tell you the truth. Uh, that, you know, that, that could be part of it. I mean, it's not, I don't, I don't think that I'm, I, you know, I don't, I don't think that I'm, excessively sentimental. That's right. In, throughout, throughout American history, there have been steps forward, there's steps back, there's steps sideways. We live in a complicated society. I guess the Trump ascendancy, however, that did throw me. I, I really was not expecting uh, something that was that callous, that gross. I did think that the American electorate would not sit still for such, frankly, open race baiting. That, and, 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 I, I got, you know, and I was wrong. You know, Randy, I have to say here, <laughs> they're going to call me a Trump apologist. They always do, because this is, uh, John and I have been having this conversation about Trump for a while. I think you're overstating it. And, and I think... It misreads the moment. Uh, this is not uh, Southern strategy, Richard Nixon, 1972. This is not even Willie Horton, Michael Dukakis, uh, George Herbert Walker Bush, 1988. This is the year of, and you know, I could go down the list of victories of uh, woke anti-racism across the board uh, within American corporate life, within American sporting life within American culture, whether within the Oscars so white, within the universities, 
uh, within the Democratic Party, uh, et cetera, within the foundation world, within the cultural institutions, uh, and so on. Uh, I am not offering a defense of Trump to observe that many of the charges against him of racism were instrumental charges seizing upon his vulnerability with respect to that to delegitimate the stuff that he wanted to do, which people didn't want him to do for the reasons that they had for not wanting him to do them. But to read the tone of American race relations in the year 2021 through the Trump, first of all, the election was very close. There were, I don't recall there being openly racist campaign messages during that election, but again, I'm not trying to defend him. I'm trying to differentiate it from other periods of American politics in which anti-Black racism was, was very overt. Um, the fact that he follows on the edge of on the, uh, uh, Obama deserves a more subtle analysis than you've offered so far in that, I mean, the simplistic story, when Obama was Black, a lot of white people were upset that a Black man was president. They decided that they would be fodder for a white demagogue who was an anti-Black demagogue, and they got the flip out. What about the way Obama conducted himself in office, managing the portfolio of race relations, which he then uh, bequeathed to the candidate in the 2016 election who lost that election? What about the vulnerability of the Democrats to some of the anti-political correctness messaging that came out of Trump's campaign? You say he's a racist because he thinks uh, uh, Colin Kaepernick shouldn't take a knee? What about patriotism for black people in this country and the extent to which uh, a, a gratuitous eschewing of identification with the American project alienates two-thirds of the middle of the electorate when we need to actually get anything done. So um, I, I, I think if you're not an optimist, it shouldn't be because of Trump. He's gone for crying out loud. No, no, Trumpism is not gone. I, I grant you that. Uh, and I don't think the battle over critical race theory in Loudoun County, Virginia, uh, is due to deep anti-racism of the sort that you're indicting Trump for betraying. I think it's due to profoundly unsettling struggles going on over the cultural definition of the narrative about this country and about the racial experience of the country, to which your vituperations just now, I think, added fuel. I mean, really, the clock is rolling back. Really, is a reason for a person as serious and um, uh, tempered as you to revise his estimate, to agree with Derrick Bell, uh, perhaps, about how somehow the unreformability of the racial, uh, et cetera. I go on and forgive me, forgive me for ranting. I'm known for ranting, Randy, but I'm on the verge of being disappointed, man. Well, hold it. I said that I feel torn. My first comment had to do with, you know, look at the vice president. Look at the, look at the head of the defense department. I mean, that's no... That's no little thing. That is a huge thing. And again, when we look through other sectors of American society, particularly the sectors that, you know, we're familiar with, I mean, again, big philanthropy, the university world, I, 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 I grant you all of that. Uh, it does, however, seize me by the throat to see the president, the, a, a person who was vying for the presidency saying just straight out to you know, white suburbia, I will protect you from those people. 
that, that's Trump. You, when you ask, you know, so, you know, give you an example of race baiting, he's not, not coded. And by the way, I think, I think that what's going on now, I would distinguish Richard Nixon, the Bushes, Ronald Reagan from Trumpism. In fact, I feel very chastened in a variety of ways. I mean, in the past, I've been very tough uh, with, you know, people to the right of me, conservatives. But frankly, in the, you know, in, 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 the, in the, 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 the moment of Trump, it has made me more appreciative of some of the conservatives whom I've cussed out in the past. I mean, oh, I'm, I'm very serious about that. Uh, compared, to, compared to what we are confronting now, uh, give me Richard Nixon. And uh, not to mention the, the Bushes, they are, a, that's a, you know, not to mention Ronald Reagan, that's a very different thing. I think we have to be attentive to complexity, and I do not think that, you know, there's a huge country, there's a huge country, lots of people, you know, have different aims, different, you know, motives, 300 million people. I do not think that race is all there is. It's one of the important things, but it's only one of the important things. But I do think that, um, I, I think there is reason for me to feel differently than I felt, let's say, 10 years ago. You know, I, I always just find myself asking, and I think I felt this way when I was a kid, although I wouldn't have had the vocabulary to put it. I'm not sure how, how good we're going to expect human beings to be. It's always just seemed to me that the miracle was Maud. I mean, the TV show. And I say that because I'm like eight or nine. And you have this national TV show where this white educated woman is lecturing people about being what they call prejudiced. And the whole idea of those Norman Lear sitcoms, and they did channel something that was going on in the country, was to show it's bad to be a bigot, it's bad to be prejudiced, and if you're Archie Bunker, you're not just dear and funny, you're wrong. That, that reflected a lesson that I think a certain segment of white America learned in the 70s and into the 80s. And my feeling has always been, okay, then you, you find that white holdout or the white person, more likely the white person who said something in a certain way, and I just always thought, yeah, that's it. I think there's a certain kind of person who sees that kind of white person and thinks, oh, we've got to fix that. And there's a part of me that's always thought, no, that person is wrong about that, but I have a life to lead. Life's never going to be perfect. It's gotten about as good as it's going to get. And now the issue is to treat this sort of thing as an occasional inconvenience and not as an obstacle. And I don't mean that as some sort of chin-up business. To me, it was always just natural. I just always figured, how good is it going to get? Do I lack imagination in that? And I mean that for real. Am I missing some kind of spark in terms of what the struggle is supposed to be? No, I don't, you know, I don't think it, that, um, you know, so for the people who talk about the, um, the permanence of racism, as if something like that is going to be totally extinguished. No, it's not going to be totally extinguished. And I think one thing we need to maybe think about a bit more is what are the metrics? What would have to change 
to make us say, um, we, we've won. You know, what would have to change? What, if somebody, if, if somebody could come down and say to me, okay, Kennedy, I tell you what, um, what statistics, what sort of things would you have to see to say that this country is no longer racist? It seems to me that, that would be a nice, you know, project. Because I think the way things are now is we leave it open-ended. And so, you know, anything that comes up, you can point to. But there will always be something that you can point to. Because it seems to me that's your point. There's always going to be something you can point to. And a nation this large is always going to be. So, you know, what is it actually that we want? What are the metrics that would lead us to say, we've turned the corner, or let's go on to something else? By the way, I'm not in a position to give you those metrics. I think it's a good project. Uh, I think it's a good project to think about. Can I just say something here? I, I like the question very much that I don't think it's an empirical question. I, I don't think it's a question of metrics of social indicators or penetration of this or that exclusive uh, re redoubt. I think it's a spiritual question, and I put that word in inverted commas. I don't mean a religious as, as much as I mean it's about the meaning of things, and, and it's about how one looks at life. And uh, I want us to put down the ducky. Do you remember that from uh, Sesame Street? Put down the ducky, Bert trying to play the saxophone, they had this little ditty. I remember with my kids, you got to put down the ducky if you want to play the saxophone because the guy, the cartoon character for the kids show was trying to play the saxophone with his ducky, which was his security blanket. It was his, you know, it was his ducky and he didn't want to put it down. You got to put down the ducky, man. And I think we have to let go of the, you got to perform without a net. We got to let go of the, of the security and the comfort, the warm comfort that comes from victimization. I mean, there is no, the, no time limit on the uh, multi-layered, multifaceted, uh, interacting consequences of historical oppression. The issue is not when will the, the aftershocks of oppression be dissipated. The issue is when will we embrace the no net performing conditions of freedom? Freedom is going into life without the backstory um, or, or the, the cover story of my ancestors were victimized. Freedom is accepting the responsibility for, if it's a high rate of criminal offending, if it's out of wedlock births, et cetera, et cetera, if it's uh, intellectual developmental deficits reflected in instruments of social measurement, uh, it, as long as you have the security blanket, this is Malcolm X, dressed up for the 21st century and shorn of the crazy nation of Islam stuff. As long as you have the security blanket, you're living in his head. He becomes the center and the sight, the white man, of, of, of your aspiration, of your, this is spiritual death. This is, this is not how you wanna be in the world. I agree, I agree with lots of that, Glenn. I would say this. Um, I think that there are lots and lots and lots of black people who are conducting themselves, who have been conducting themselves along the lines that you suggest. In fact, 
One of the things I think is sort of interesting about the, you know, the, 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 the history fight, and that's a big part, of course, of, you know, the cultural struggle at the moment. Um, my sense is that there has been actually too little attention paid to the extraordinary things that black people have done since their emancipation. And that in fact, one reason, and, and one reason for that is if you pay, if you do pay attention to the extraordinary things that have been done, you almost have to give credit to the polity that allowed for that. And my sense is that there are some people who are so dead set on not giving any credit to that polity that they're willing to also not give credit to what black people have done. 1865 is not that long ago. And in 1865, the great mass, four million black people, just been emancipated, just been emancipated from slavery. Four million couldn't read or write. It had been a, it had been a crime. And since then, I mean, and look now, it's true that, you know, yes, it's true that we have people that are living in bad circumstances in the various, you know, ghettos of America and in, you know, agri you know, in, in rural poverty. That, that's true. That's by no means the majority of black Americans. It's an important segment of black America, but it's not the majority of black America. The uh, millions of black Americans have been actually working in a cell in, a, in an incredibly disciplined way and have been just moving on up, moving ahead. And I think that that actually warrants more attention than it gets. You're preaching to the choir as far as I'm concerned. John is in and out, uh, and I, I assume he'll be back. I don't know what's going on with his connection. But uh, I mean, I, and I've said as much in some of the speeches that I've been given and stuff like that. I mean, I say, you know, look at the, we're the most powerful, wealthiest, most influential, most culturally uh, significant, large population of African descent on the planet. Now, you got to be careful because this leads you into, uh, because we're joined at the hip with American empire. I mean, because one of the reasons that that statement is true is because we're embedded within, if you will, the belly of the beast. I mean, we're, we're, we're you know, I don't know how you want to feel about colonialism if you're one of the recipients of all of this, uh, you know, wealth and power uh, only because of the large Western project of dominating the planet that comes out of 1500. And so you're in an ambiguous position as a son of slaves five, six generations on where you're, you know, living high on the hog and yet, you know, et cetera. So that deserves the kind of intellectual seriousness that I know you, Randy, will bring to reflecting on the, you know, the kind of ironies, the ironies of our, of our situation within the belly of the beast here. Uh, but we are wealthy, powerful, uh, influential. Uh, and and th this point about literacy, I think it should be studied more carefully. I've been looking and I haven't been able to find a historian or somebody who's carefully documented 
But I think it's a world historic phenomenon. I think the achievement of the 50 years after 1865 of learning to read and building schools and acquiring trade skill and starting businesses and uh, farms and what I think it's it's a world historic transformation. There's a historian, I forget her name, but she has written a book about the struggle for literacy before the abolition of slavery. So she has written about the, the people who were enslaved and what they did to attain literacy when it was a, a crime. And she talks about people digging, she talks about people digging, uh, uh, going out in the forest, digging holes, and you'd have slaves who had done various things. They had observed white people reading, listening. They had, they, had, they had basically bartered with young whites. I'll do this for you if you teach, if you teach me you know, the alphabet, and you teach me how to read and write. And she talks about the numbers of people who actually, as slaves, learned to be, you know, learned literacy. This is an aspect of our culture that, again, we need to be, I think, you know, we need to be more attentive to. And, um, you know, uh, and th that's all. That's all. You know, it seems to me that in terms of the question of how we would know we had come a certain distance, it's really, it's one thing. I mean, in terms of me dipping my toe into commenting about race, and I know many people think that I wasn't and am not qualified to do it, but as soon as I started dipping in, I realized the main thing was the cops. That was the main thing that was on people's minds. And I think that if there weren't a sense in black America that the cops are uniquely, um, uniquely um, opposed to black people and blackness, if there was one generation that didn't grow up with that meme, so to speak, I think most black people would feel like things were pretty much okay. There would, there would always be a certain intellectual class who would maintain that it wasn't. It would become the conceit of, frankly, overeducated people that the race situation was still in crisis. And of course, as Glenn and I have discussed, there is a way of looking at the statistics. And Randy, you probably you know this better than me, but the statistics of who the cops kill and for what reason and you can look at those things and not see any racial bias in who gets killed by the cops. I'm inclined to think that that is a valid way to look at these things, even though, and Randy, you have no reason to remember this, but way back, probably literally 20 years ago, I wrote you and I asked, you know, Professor Kennedy, is there reason to believe that there is discrimination against black people in the criminal justice system? Because I really didn't know. I wanted to know. And you wrote back very briefly, yes, there is. And you may have referred me to one of your books, but you didn't say why. And I'm you know, open to that still being the case. But if that weren't the case, I think that all of the other disparities that we're talking about would not, at least to people on the ground, feel like it justified the alarmist way of looking at things that you see in the world roughly of Twitter. Would you, would you agree with that? No, not, 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 no. Um, I do think that, I do think that with respect to the administration of criminal law, there, it seems to me, there is clearly a race problem 
racial discrimination. Uh, notice I did not say disparities. I, I, you know, it's, it's sort of a little, the, the word disparity and discrimination have been made into synonyms and they, they ought not be viewed as synonyms. I'm, uh, you know, a disparity might come from, it might be discrimination, but it might be something else. Can you address the, uh, the racial justice uh, DAs uh, in, in, the, in the course of your remarks now? Can you adjust, uh, address these uh, uh, liberal uh, district attorneys who run for office in St. Louis and Philadelphia and San Francisco and Boston and Chicago and other places, Baltimore, with an Atlanta, an explicit vision about racial justice reform, some funded by George Soros, although that's not the main point here, just to kind of put the political tight space that they're in. Um, in the context of what it is that you're saying about the police and, and, and the issue of uh, uh, race and whatnot, Be because they, they are an important part of the political landscape right now in urban yeah. uh, 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 criminal law administration. Yes. So you're absolutely right. In, 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 in a number of urban areas, there are people who have run for office as you know, district attorneys. And um, they have seized upon the um, reformist, you know, the reformist energy and have used that energy to, you know, put themselves in office. And frankly, I applaud that. I think that's fine. It is noteworthy that some of the people who have done this have, are, are, are now catching it on both sides. I mean, they're, they're catching it from police unions and, you know, they're catching it from the people to their right, but they're also catching it a lot, unfortunately, from people to their left who say that they're not going far enough. And, you know, I think that one thing that has to be, to, to, to go back to, my, to, to my, not my point about race and the criminal justice system, is there a racism problem in the administration of criminal justice? Yes, there is. The police, um, you know, I, I say this on the basis of just, you know, statistics. I also say this on the basis of just observation. Uh, the police, in my view, all too often uh, act towards blacks, particularly younger black men in a racialized way that has fed the resentment, fed the fear, fed the animus, that's a big problem. Now, is it the only problem? No, it's not the only problem. There are at least two others that I wanna mention right quick. One, a huge problem, is the problem of criminality. I mean, you know, you, you go to these urban areas and that's right, people are afraid. It, the, who are the people in America who are most vulnerable to rape, uh, burglary, uh, assault, armed robbery? Yes, absolutely. And, you know, well-off people, well-off people, affluent people, whoever they are, you know, fluent, black people, affluent white people, 
they'll buy houses in places where this is not a problem. They'll be in gated communities. They'll hire their own police forces. So that's, po that's point number one. There's another point. The other point is, it seems to me, people, if you're talking about the police, for goodness sakes, do not forget that um, police misconduct, and it, police misconduct is a problem. It's a real problem. I think it's scandalous that the uh, American law does not do a better, does not, does not do a better job of regulating the police. Don't forget, um, there are white people who are roughed up by the police. There are white people who are shot by the police. Twice as many. You know, and, and, and when we talk about the police, I've been in conversations, I've been in many conversations, we talk about the police, it's as if it's, it's only a racial thing. And it seems to me that's bad both analytically and politically. It's bad analytically because just empirically it's not true. If we're talking about you know, police deaths, it's true that a disproportionate number of black people are you know, the victims of you know, excessive police force. It's also true, however, that there are good many white people who are as well. And here's the political point. Twice as many. What do you mean twice as many? Twice as many white people are killed by police as black people in a given year. I didn't know it was that big, but I know it's a lot of white people. Well, it's a pro pro proportionate to population. There are more blacks, but the absolute number. Absolutely, yes. Okay, so, so uh, yeah, 1.7%. Let me make my last point. Let me, let me just round off the point by saying, if you, are, if you are interested, and you should be, we all should be, everybody should be interested in having a, a political legal system that creates good policing, well-regulated policing, if that's what you're interested in, and we should be, for goodness sakes, you can't, you, you can't accomplish that if you just have black people on your side. You need a lot of people on your side and you need white people on your side as well. And you need to go to white people and you need to say, hey, listen, you've got a dog in this fight. This could happen to you too. This could happen to your children too. Join with us in the creation of good policing. Uh, okay, so now I want to make my point, which is to do that, you need to de-racialize the discussion about policing and uh, crime and criminal victimization and police violence. You need to de These are officers of the state acting on behalf of the preservation of public order who have awesome authority vis-a-vis -vis citizens, sometimes some of whom are criminals who are breaking the law. This becomes a very deep problem of social management and order maintenance. It's not an easy problem. It's a problem in human civilization wherever you've looked at any point in time. Certainly in the modern urbanized societies, it's going to be a problem in Northern Europe. It's going to be a problem in Latin America. It's going to be a problem, et cetera. We don't have to racialize that discussion. And the reason we shouldn't do it is because the first two points that you made, police need to be regulated because sometimes they act in anti-black ways. And there's a real crime problem it could be related to each other because the crime problem has a, has a racial coloration. Sorry to report. If you're a police officer in one of these cities, you have to consider the possibility that you're going to get killed. 
I mean, it may be that you exaggerate the likelihood of it, but certainly you're not imagining it that there are gangbangers out there killing people. There are. There are carjackers out there who are doing what they're doing, and you have to operate in that environment. That's racialized. Now, we could say in our, the comfort of our uh, Ivy League offices that they shouldn't see race. They shouldn't, they should disattend. They, they should not notice. They, they should have no prejudice. They should have no implicit bias. They should be perfect. They should be colorblind. But come on, that's unrealistic. And not only is it unrealistic to think they're not afraid of that young black kid when they smell reefer coming out of the front of the car and they don't know whether there's a pistol under the seat and they may be a little trigger happy and it may lead them to make a mistake. Uh, not only that, but there are communities of police officers in Staten Island and uh, suburban uh, Cleveland and suburban Chicago and St. Louis and, and whatnot who have their own sense of identity. You're going to write them out. They might vote for Donald Trump. They, they might be part of this racist army of, of retrograde people who are taking us toward fascism that you're talking about. They live on Staten Island. They, they are um, ethnic, Irish or Italian or sometimes Jewish. Uh, they're working class whites uh, and they resent the George Floyd riots. They resent Ben uh, Crump going around talking about open season on black people. They resent the buffoon Al Sharpton going around talking about uh, America needs to get its knee off of the neck as George Floyd is buried in a gold casket pulled by a caisson in a state funeral in Houston. They resent it. Now, are we going to write them out of the conversation simply as racist? Or are we going to realize that deracializing this whole fucking conversation and talking about Americans American law-abiding uh, citizens, American criminals, and American police officers is really the only way out. Glenn, I agree with much of what you said, but it seems to me there's a contradiction in your statement. Uh, you, there was, a, there was a lot of race talk in what you just said. And it seems to me that we're going to have to, we're going to have to, in a sense, accept it all. On the one hand, we have to realize, it seems to me, that there is a race issue going on in the administration of justice. At the same time, we have to realize that race isn't everything. At the same time, we have to realize that uh, crime is a problem. At the same time, we have to realize this point that you were making about communities of police. It seems to me that it's, it's all there. And I think the, the intellectuals, the commentators have to embrace it all and try to uh, speak in a way to get our public to understand the complexity of the situation we're in. Going down one avenue, you know, exclusively won't do. So here's, here's some complexity, and I'm asking this not as rhetoric, but as a question to you, Randy. You are reading the paper, probably Monday, and you hear about a carjacking, the usual story. You hear about the three-year-old girl who got killed in gunfire. And I'm sure all three of us have had this experience. You don't even need to wonder. The newspaper is trying to make it seem like it could just be anybody. But we know 
The people who did that are almost certainly black. When you hear about that carjacking, the person who did it was not named Ethan. Sometimes girls do it. They are not named Kaylee. And, you know, if you look a few days later, you find out they, they published the names. And you can, you can see by the names, even though they're still trying not to let you know. Now, that's simply a fact. And you're talking about all the facts that need to be taken into consideration holistically, and that's definitely true. But it's a fact, what I just said. What is the reason that the people who are doing that are not white, even on Staten Island? And that's not to say that some grimy things don't happen on Staten Island. However, not nearly as frequently. Those boys killing themselves over sneakers, none of them are named Tony. So what? Why? Now, many people would say it's because of racism. And frankly, they're kind of sloppy when they say it. You are never sloppy. What is the answer to that question? Um, I don't know. I'm not trying to be evasive. Um, I, I do know that the social reality that you describe is, alas, a reality. Um, you know, what is going on there? Um, you know, I, 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 I hope that there are other people who are engaged in study that can shed light on this, but I can't. I, 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 it's, 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 it's outside of my kin. I, you know, I study certain things. I can answer certain questions. This was one I, I, I really I can't. Uh, alas, <laughs> I'm a social scientist, and I guess I don't have the luxury of ducking the question here. Uh, and, and uh, you know, let me just note what it's not. It's not poverty. Because there are poor communities and you don't see this behavior. It's not racism in any direct sense. Because we're talking about the actions of individuals who have to be assumed to have the exercise of free will over their actions. I mean, they are responsible for their actions. If you're talking about a three-year-old getting shot on the porch sitting on his mother's lap because somebody was carelessly firing a pistol out of a window, I mean, to say that that was caused by racism uh, requires a PhD in sociology. I mean, most people are not going to get that. Um, Glenn, you said it's not poverty. Would you, uh, is it, it's, it's, it's not only poverty. Okay, I, I will accept that amendment. I certainly don't mean to say that poverty is unrelated to the phenomena that we talk about. I just mean to say that the disparity by race, which was the burden of John's question, why do you know that the name is not Kaylee or Tony? And how do we know that? And I'm, and I'm saying that that disparity, if you will, of uh, the incidence of the pathological behavior that we're calling into a question can't be accounted for in any direct or simplistic way by reference to, to poverty. Because as I say, there are a lot of poor communities where you, don't, where you don't see it happening. It's hard to avoid the word culture here. I mean, it's, it's hard not to think about how children are raised and what the values are that are instilled in them. It's hard also not to see sociological networks at work where there are effects that come about because of the way people are interacting with each other that, are, that, that can't be reduced down to any individual character or whatever, but that are, that are systemic effects. I mean, I think, for example, the fact that you may have a hard time getting witnesses to come forward to testify against assailants when they see a, a, something happen, making it very difficult to convict 
uh, violent felons of the crimes that they've committed, making the threat of retaliation against the witness powerfully credible because the witness has to know that violent acts don't get punished, making the witness fearful to cooperate, which leads to the non-punishment of the violent acts. That's a systemic effect that you can't put the finger on any person when you're when you're talking about that. That's a macro phenomenon. So I think there are a lot of things that are that are like that. But but I think that um, the narrative that we have that these justice DAs that I was talking about all embrace that the intellectuals who are in the Afro-American studies departments and who are uh, winning the, uh, the MacArthur Genius Awards and whatnot will put in their books. Um, is that there's somehow, you know, a uh, get out of moral responsibility free card implicit in the uh, evocation of racism. And, uh, and, and I think that that's a terrible thing. Uh, it's a terrible thing, not only for the public policy outcome, but it's, it's a moral surrender. And I'm just going to say this. The vicious murderers who were taking black lives in the thousands on the streets of American cities are despicable. Their behavior is absolutely contemptible. It should be possible to run a political campaign against them. The fact that they are vastly disproportionately black severely limits the willingness of responsible black leaders to condemn this pathology within our own community. I'm sorry, I'm sorry for how that sounded. I know how terrible it sounds, but that's precisely the point that I'm trying to underscore here. Today's show sponsor is The Spectator Magazine. Having been founded in 1828, it's the longest running magazine in the world. The mission statement they sent me says they believe that journalism must be witty and insightful and that ideas should be discussed without the constant threat of cancellation. They're neither right or left wing and consider their mission to convey intelligence, not ideology. They believe that life is bigger than politics, which is why the magazine covers arts, culture, food, wine, travel, and life all around. The slogan they use to convey this is, the spectator is more cocktail party, less political party. So sign up today and you'll receive three free months of both the print and digital magazine, plus a free spectator hat. Just use offer code GLENN, G-L-E-N-N, at checkout to redeem the special offer just for listeners of this podcast. Go to spectatorworld.com forward slash special offer and use offer code Glenn. I've been aware of the spectator for many years and feel comfortable saying that even if you disagree with its politics, you are guaranteed to be entertained. Their contributors include many prominent and sometimes controversial authors from Christopher Buckley to PJ O'Rourke to Douglas Murray to Slavoj Žižek, from the Biden administration to book reviews, from cancel culture to cultural cuisine, The Spectator will entertain you from cover to cover. So sign up today to get three months of The Spectator for free, plus a free Spectator hat when you subscribe at spectatorworld.com forward slash special offer. Use offer code Glenn at checkout to redeem your offer. That's spectatorworld.com forward slash special offer and offer code Glenn. Let me jump in. 
first. A couple of minutes ago, you sort of said, I think with a sort of, it was a, a mock quotation marks, culture. And unfortunately, you know, sort of culture has been coded right. But then, you know, I think of the great W.B. Du Bois, the Philadelphia Negro. Uh, du Bois would have been perfectly happy talking about culture, talking about networks, talking about the reality of things. And culture is, of course, powerfully important in this. And Glenn, I agree with you that there has arisen a certain sort of um, excusing, and we see it in a variety of ways. So we see it when people, you can't use the word riot. No, no, no. It's uprising. It's a rebellion. So if you have somebody who's taking pot shots from a roof, you know, they are engaged in rebellion. If they throw a Molotov cocktail in a grocery store, don't just, you know, they're, they're not criminal arsonists. No, they're engaged in rebellion. We saw that. We've seen that very much in the last couple of years. We've seen that uh, articulated in responsible magazines, including magazines for which I've written, magazines you know, I'm, I'm part of their community, and it's, it's a big problem. We see it when people say that, you know, black people can't be racist. That's become axiomatic. I mean, that's not even, you know, that's a, that's a yawn. Um, we see it when the word thugs. Oh, don't say that. What do you mean don't say that? Uh, are, there, are there thugs? I've, I've, I've seen people be thugs. What, I, I, I can't say that this person that's beating up on this defenseless person, taking this person's money, I can't say that they're acting like a thug? They are a thug. What are you talking about? And so I think that, you, I think that we are going to have to really, in a very rigorous, ongoing way, put down a standard and say no. No, no, no. We're not, uh-uh, uh-uh, no. That's just criminality. And, you know, we can talk about a lot of things there. You know, American society does have a lot of problems, a lot of unfairness, a lot of injustice. I think that. I really do. I think that in a big way. Uh, I also think, however, that there are many people who are in the grip of unfairness and injustice and they don't encroach on their neighbors and steal from them and rob from them and you know kill them. We, we, you know, it's, it's certain that it seems to me. And I, you know, I'm different than you, Glenn. I'm, 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 I'm ideologically, I think, I'm, 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 a, you know, several clips to the left of you. I think, and I don't care, frankly, what one's ideological vantage is, it seems to me that this very basic issue of, you know, individual responsibility, standards, you know, right, wrong, 
that has to be there and um, that needs to be part, much more a part, I think, of our, you know, intellectual discourse. I'm not at all um, uncomfortable with your reference to culture, not at all uncomfortable with your reference to individual responsibility, not at all uncomfortable with, you know, the, the, the points that you make. And in fact, it seems to me that there is much about what you say that should be brought into the framework that I'm very comfortable with. I think of, you know, at the very beginning of the show, you talked about when we first met, and one person who was very controversial, I think of it as one of the first times I think I ever talked with you, there was a session at, I don't know where at Harvard, but there was some session, and William Julius Wilson was being uh, discussed. And of course, at that time, he was being. It was a cult of conservative. Yes, he was being. He was. Here's this guy who's a socialist, and he was being attacked, attacked, attacked. And it seems to me that, in a way, that conversation of thirty years ago is still. We're you know we're having reiterations of it. It's 40 years, uh, Randy, but who's, who's counting? Yeah, 40 years. <laughs> and actually, you know, in, in, there's a way in which through those 40 years, and, it, you know, we can, we can talk popular culture. In those 40 years, I mean, one of the things that we saw in those 40 years, you know, The Wire. The Wire actually was a very good um, presentation of much of what we're talking about. And the question is, how are we going to get at that? It's gonna take, it's gonna take a lot. I, and, and again, to get back to uh, John, your question to me, you know, what's the cause? I don't know what the cause is. What is it gonna to take to get at it? I, I have a sense of some of the things, but there's, there's much on the spiritual realm there are things that are going to have to be done. And there, you know, again, I, I don't know, but I do know that there is a cultural, spiritual, there are a whole variety of things that have to be done at the same time if we are going to make headway on this. The culture part is key, and that word is so loaded that I try to avoid it. But it's painfully clear that the kinds of behaviors that I just mentioned, even behavior is wrong. There's a certain kind of person who hears you say behavior and says, are you pathologizing? But sorry that we've hit the limit. I the am. The thing. And by the way, I think that you're, I don't think that you should. I think that, again, here we are. I think, actually, that we're going to have to lean into certain things and actually, um, you know, no, I'm not. No, let's talk about it. I think that we cannot mm -hmm. avoid certain things. It is clear that in the, in the realms that I'm talking about, certain things are thought of as normal. The norms are different in those communities than they are even in a poor white hillbilly elegy community. I believe, I may be wrong on that, but I suspect that there's a difference even, even there. 
And I consider the question really urgent because, of course, the wrong answer, but the one that a lot of people have when people like us aren't around and they share it, is that there's something wrong with black people. Now, I'm going to discard that. But then the other explanation, which is that it's racism, that the people that Glenn and I call the people with three names have, is clearly, as they say, whack. It's, it, it's not racism in any sense that the word has any real meaning from it. So what is it in my, my inclination? And I lack the training to really nail this, but I would bet almost all of my money that this is what it is. It is that since the 1960s, the black community has inherited to varying degrees a sense that the rules are different for us because of the pervasiveness of racism. And we've been supported in that view by a white establishment that in a way, in some ways, learned the lesson about racism too well. And I know I, know I sound like I'm about to be Shelby Steele, and I guess I am, but I think he's, he's correct. And one way that we know this, this is not something I'm aware Shelby ever said, but one way we know it is that you want to look for a comparison. And it seems to me that in terms of recent history, or really American history in general, the only other group that paralleled the sorts of things we see in that segment of the black community were the Irish back in the 19th century and maybe a little bit into the 20th. That's such an old issue now that we tend to forget. But, you know, they were thought of as a different race and more to the point, men behaved in exactly the same way, although with different technology. The whole thing that we think of as a black slash quote unquote ghetto thing now, the Irish were doing all the same stuff. And the Irish, too had reason to think of themselves as perpetual victims because of what had happened to them on the other side of the ocean, not to mention here. There was a sense even among them that what we do is different because everybody hates us. You know, we're, we're, we're doing our best just to show up. I get the feeling that if we rolled back the tape and then played everything again, sociologists would have a name for that phenomenon. And it would be something that you could gracefully say happened to Black America for no reason that was anybody's fault but that you have to look past that as Glenn, you're implying, no matter what has happened to you, there's no such thing as you not having responsibility for what you do. There's no such thing as somebody breaking a window and stealing a TV and then shooting somebody from the roof and being called somebody who is an upriser rather than a rioter. It just won't do. But I think that sociology hasn't reified that a group of people can see themselves as exempt from general norms of behavior for a complex cocktail of reasons, but that's my that's my my sense of it. Some people will say that I'm just saying that there's a pathology, but that's not what I mean. But it's not racism, and it's not that there's anything wrong with black people. So what else? And I think it requires more imagination than a lot of people seem to think the question needs to be given. I think there's I think there's a lot to that. I lately have been viewing with I don't know sort of new respect, yearning, uh, the old, you know, anti-discrimination standard, shoe on the other foot. You know, if, if, what would we say if the racial shoe was on the other foot? So this summer, when, when the, there was the case of the, you know, the, the mayor, I guess it was the mayor of Chicago, and I've heard nice things about the mayor of Chicago, but- Lori Lightfoot? Yeah, but the, you know- Yeah, I know this, what you're getting ready to say. There was, the, there was this incident, as I recall it, where, you know, I'm only going to speak to, you know, journalists of color. You know, I, what? What would we say if the racial shoe was on the other foot? It seems to me that 
there is a very strong, I'd say for me, my default position is, you know, even Stephen, shoe on the other foot. Uh, it's a very simple, it's very straightforward. Uh, you know, in, in maybe in certain circumstances, you could, you could, you could convince me that there should be, you know, some, some other sort of standard. But so let me think, Jim Randy, because Lori Life, and I'm not defending her at all, I agree with you 100%, was saying the press corps in the coverage of the mayoralty in Chicago is too white. I'm going to give preference to reporters of color. She wasn't saying reporters of color are going to report favorably on me and I'm going to keep critics out of the room. I, I just think that that point needs to be made. But, I, but the, I agree with you about the shoe on the other foot. And here's what I want to ask you. You're a professor at Harvard University. When I surveyed the data that had been collected by Discovery in the Harvard uh, Students for Fair Admissions lawsuit, uh, if you looked at the stratification of applicants by their academic credential and you looked not at the bottom or the top, but you looked in the middle, like at the 60th percentile, the 70th percentile, if you were an Asian applicant to Harvard and you had a middling academic profile, you had a single digit 5%, 6% chance of getting admitted. And if you were an African-American and you had a middling academic profile, you had a 35, 40% chance of getting admitted to Harvard. Shoe on the other foot. I'm not the brightest, 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 super smart kid, but I'm a pretty smart kid. I do perfectly well at the University of Massachusetts, the University of Illinois, and I probably could make it at Harvard as well. Give me a chance to join the elite of America. Shoe on the other foot. Why should a black kid have a 10 times greater chance of getting admitted to Harvard than a, a Chinese kid uh, when we're talking about not super performers, but we're talking about well-rounded individuals, right? I mean, Harvard says we're not just looking at SAT scores. We're looking at, well, they're well-rounded Asian kids. There are just as many well-rounded Asian kids as they're well-rounded black kids in proportion. There's no reason for me to assume anything different from that. So does, if I take the logic of your statement, don't I have to have a great deal of sympathy for the students uh, for fair admissions side of that lawsuit? Um, yes, you do. And um, I, you know, as you know, I've been, you know, throughout my adult life, uh, a proponent of affirmative action, a defender of affirmative action, um, I'm still a defender of affirmative action with some asterisks. Um, and, um, you know, uh, actually, I guess it was last year, Glenn, you came up to Harvard, uh, and you, you spoke in a lecture series and you, you said, you know, well, you know, policies, you know, policies have justifications. They have, you know, they're born. They have justifications. They last, a, you know, a, a while. They do things. Uh, oughtn't there be reconsiderations? I mean, you know, that's why sometimes when people pass laws, they pass a law and they have a sunset provision. This law is going to be good for 10 years and we'll come back in 10 years and take a look. Is it still good? Um... I think that we need to rethink. I really do. I think uh, I think we need to rethink. Uh, for one thing, the, you know the racial demographics of the United States are different. Uh, 
uh, the, you know, the situation in 1970 within the right in the aftermath of the second reconstruction is different in terms of the, you know, the, 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 the black middle class. Uh, you know, now we have a situation where we have, you know, you know, an appreciable number of, you know, black people who've gone to fancy schools and are, you know, created careers and, you know, their kids are going to fancy schools and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I am at this moment in a mood to rethink. There's another thing about the affirmative action issue, which has always been there, but it was, it was put to the side for a good long time. That has to do with the question of class. So, you know, actually early on, I mean, in the 1960s, I think of, you know, Robert Allen, uh, you know, uh, and, you know, very left, left black nationalist who said, hey, uh, this affirmative action, it's, it's, you know, this is, this is, this is opiate, an opiate for the black middle class. It's a way to shut them up. And of course, he had a point. Um, now, I guess I want to say, you know, where do we allocate our attention? Do we allocate the bulk of our attention to the, you know, young person who would like to go to, let's say, the University of Michigan Law School? But, uh, you know, do we, do, we, do we fight for that person so that person can go to the University of Michigan Law School? I mean, if you're a plausible candidate for the University of Michigan Law School, you're a plausible, you're doing very well. You've graduated from college. You've done well at college if you're a plausible candidate. So if you don't go to the University of Michigan Law School, maybe go to the Michigan State University Law School. Maybe you go to Case Western. Maybe you go to some other place. Question, do we, how much do we focus on you and your cadre as opposed to the kids who graduate from, you know, Detroit public schools and, you know, they, they graduate and they're functionally illiterate. They don't go to any school. They don't go to community college. They don't go anywhere. And I think that we really do need to think about that. We need to think about, you know, again, Glenn, things that you've talked about, the question of incentives. Uh, you know, how do we incentivize people? Do you create a situation in which you, uh, you know, sort of let people think that uh, they're going to get, a, you know, they're, they're, they're going to get that bump. And if you think that you're going to get that bump, maybe you don't dig as hard as you need to dig. I didn't. Really, I you thought that way? Oh, yeah. I grew up knowing that I grew up knowing that black kids didn't have to try quite as hard. And I was right. I mean, I just want to put some specificity on it. If you're a black kid, you go to a pretty good college like John teaches at Columbia. That's a good one. Or Harvard or Brown or one of these places. And you get a 3.25 grade point average. It's a B, not quite a B plus. And you graduate and you get, I don't know, at the 50, 60th percentile of test takers on the LSAT. You still got a decent chance of getting admitted. 
at a lot of law schools, probably not Yale, probably not Harvard, but you know, you probably got a chance of getting into Michigan. If you're a white kid with that kind of a profile, you can forget about it. So what we're talking about is the pressure that's on kids who aspire to go to law school when they're making the decisions about allocating their time and their energies in their uh, uh, preparation and their acquisition of the kinds of skills that you need to succeed at law school. The last time I checked, I'm talking to a law professor, contracts, torts, civil procedure, constitutional law, these were some pretty tough, intellectually demanding, rigorous uh, 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 challenges to, uh, to the young people who have to parse these cases and try to discern the subtle points of law and logic that are at play in these opinions and these doctrines as they develop and to apply them in new fact situations and things of this kind. This is intellectual work. It, it, it's not nothing. So when I see Sandra Sellers, the lecturer at the Georgetown Law Center who got caught on a hot mic saying that most of the kids at the bottom, or I see at the bottom of her class were black kids and she lamented that, but it was the same year after year. When I see Amy Wax, who is vituperative to be sure and uh, you know is a, is a rabble rouser, but nevertheless, she reports that she has rarely seen kids performing at the top of their class at the University of Pennsylvania Law School. And nobody ever actually contradicts the factual assertions that she's made. Or when I hear partners saying, you know, we know that we have to hire some of these associates. Or when I look at the uh, clerkship behavior of justices and judges who are selecting uh, people who are going to be helping them actually write their opinions and the, and the uh, people are underrepresented. I mean, I'm sorry, I ramble a little bit. Isn't there something corrupt and fraudulent? It's not just bad incentives. It leads to lying. Uh, it leads to humiliation. Uh, it it, it, under, it undermines, and at Georgetown, again, forgive me for not finishing the sentence, it, it undermines our confidence in institutions when really there's not necessarily any warrant for that. At Georgetown, the faculty practically turns itself inside out, hunting for systemic racism to account for the fact that black kids are clustering at the bottom of the uh, negotiation class that that lecturer was teaching, when in fact they're using lower cutoffs on this LSAT and the GPA to admit the kids, and they know that performance in law school is correlated with those things, at least in the first year of the curriculum. So, so Glenn, it's, it's worse than what you say. Glenn, there is, um, you know, is there denial is there prevarication? Answer, yes, there is. Now, you know, um, one of the reasons for this is because we still have a, we have, I, I think we, we have a big problem with shame. So if we're talking about affirmative action, I mean, I, I've been on many panels where people speak and they talk and they'll say things like, um, well, we're really not lowering any standards. People talk about lowered standards, but there's no lowering of standards. And I'll say, hey, hold it, hold it. Maybe I showed up at the wrong place. Maybe, maybe you know, I, maybe I took the wrong turn because I thought we were talking about affirmative action, and the whole dilemma, the whole point, 
is that you are changing standards for a purpose. Now, I'm willing to defend yeah. the purpose to a large extent, at least in some setting. I'm willing still to defend. But let's not play around and sort of deny that there's so, you know, that there's a lowering. And that, and that sort of thing happens. I tell you, the place where that's really gotten me, and I think that really started, I don't know, it, 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 it really grabbed me more than actually the higher education setting was the issue of the special schools uh, in New York and yeah. in Boston so much now so that at least in Boston, you know, I mean, people are talking about, let's not have a special school. Yeah. You know? Let me just let the audience know that uh, I spoke recently with Wei-Wa Chen and uh, the Glenn Show, who is uh, head of the Chinese American Citizen Council of Greater New York, advocating on behalf of maintenance of the exams for the specialized schools in New York City. So people can refer to that. Am I, um, do you think of me as being rhetorical and saying that these aren't occasional cases. It isn't a matter of there's some of that. The things that you're mentioning right now are becoming the flavor of the country. Enlightened people are beginning to think that this is the way it's supposed to go. Would you say that, or do you think it's just the occasional case? Well, I, I, on the one hand, the people that you know I interact with a lot, and I bet you, you interact with a lot, that's true. On the other hand, Again, this goes back to the very beginning of the show. I think, you know, it's, I feel so conflicted because on the one hand, we have people who are in, you know, are deni in denial, are, you know, making claims that are just completely untenable. No, there's no relaxation of standards. What are you talking about? Of course. I remember that from UC when I was there. Nobody, people would look right past you when you tried to make them you know, acknowledge that. Yeah, you know, well, I, I mean, even you, said, let's have a conversation about why we lower the standards for these kids, because I think we need to make a better case. I was naive to think I was going to get a real answer. Back in the late 90s, everybody looked at me like I was speaking Hungarian. Would yeah, not speak. Yeah, I mean, people, you know, you know, make it seem as though that's a outre thing to, to say. Let me make a point here. I mean, it's a social scientist point, I think, and but I, I want to make it nonetheless, which is, you said shame. I think that was a very important word. Mm -hmm. I think the resistance to acknowledging the lowering of standards has to do with the desire to sustain honor, dignity, the the respect, the 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 standing, the the sense of evaluation of of the people who are the beneficiaries of affirmative action. We don't want to label them. We don't want to stigmatize them. And, and the point I want to make, the economist point, I think, is that, you know, if it was just money, we could tax some people and could give it to other people. And then the people who didn't have the money would have money. And the inequality of money would be reduced. But if it's honor, if it's dignity, if it's, if it's standing, if it's um, the, the earned accolade of affirmation associated with your achievement, the lowering of the standards is an anathema. It, it's, a, it's the actual opposite of what it is that you want to do. I mean, you may need to lower the standards in order to get people into the environment, but you must understand there's a first order trade-off has been created when you do that. And the, the, attempt, the attempt to bluff it, 
to say, oh, no, 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 there's not any difference after the fact when you've lowered the standard undermines either the integrity of the institution because you grade inflate and you flatten and you refuse to make the relevant distinctions of excellence that are necessary for what you're trying to do, or you, you force this kind of phony bluff, this kind of environment in which people are blustering. They don't have any black people in the physics department. When what you need to do is to be able to do physics to be a black person in the physics department, worse being in the physics department. And when you get away from stuff like physics and you start getting into stuff where there's a lot of subjective play and whatnot, I mean, I'm going to go this far, Randy, and I, I provoke you. Ethnic studies is a double-edged sword. Uh, the creation, Martin Kilson wasn't entirely wrong back in 1969 or whenever. This is ancient history at Harvard. But he was a young professor of political science and the Faculty of Arts and Sciences, and he said he wasn't so sure that creating an Afro-American studies department outside of the regular faculty was a good idea, the sidetracking of ethnic studies into its own silo, because what that is is an end run around the evaluative expertise of the departments. Now, it may be true that the departments were neglecting to study the particular substantive issues, but it's also true that their uh, imprimatur was important. The, the historians judging history, the economists judging economics, the cultural studies and literature people judging literature. And did you fool anybody when you created a separate silo and you, and you defined and you declared them to be excellent, ipso facto? You know, did you really fool anybody or did you only force these evaluative assessments underground and make them inappropriate to, to, to voice? And I'm, I don't want black people in the middle of the 21st century to be dependent upon that kind of sleight of hand, that kind of almost mild bullying of the rhetorical environment. You can't tell me about my failures. You can't point out the obvious evidence of the fact that I have not achieved what it is, et cetera, et cetera. How dare you say I'm not as great a composer, an actor, an economist, a lawyer uh, as the next guy? Are you saying something's wrong with black people? Here's that kind of, which doesn't fool anybody at the end of the day. Here's what I say to students uh, that I come in contact with. I say, listen, um, you know, welcome. You, you know, glad that you're part of this community. Uh, we welcome you. Uh, this community is going to give a lot to you. I'm sure you're going to give a lot to this community. Now, I've heard people talk and, you know, people say you know, there's, a, there's a big emphasis on don't, anybody, don't let anybody tell you that you're not as good, that you're not as smart, that you're not as, you know, accomplished as, you know, as the next person. And one thing that I say to students, particularly, you know, the black students to whom I'm talking, I say, listen, I'm going to go autobiographical on you. Um, I've certainly been in settings where I wasn't as good as my peers. So, for instance, when I clerked at the United States Court of Appeals, there were three clerks. I clerked for Judge J. Skelly Wright. There were three clerks. My two co-clerks were a lot better than me. They were more capable than me. They knew more than me. Now. I don't feel ashamed at saying that. I don't feel ashamed at saying that. In fact, to tell you the truth, um, I'll give myself credit because at least I had sense enough 
to observe reality. They were better. So what did that mean? That meant that I had to dig more. That meant that I had to outwork them. They were better than me, but I, I made up a lot of ground. And I'm very proud of having made up a lot of ground. The next year when I went to the Supreme Court, four law clerks, I was not the caboose this time. There was somebody who was behind me, but I had two people who were ahead of me. Over the course of that year, again, I made up a lot of ground. I tell people, I say, listen, don't let, don't be vain. Don't be vain. Don't be ashamed. Of course, you know, you're going to be ahead of some people and some people are going to be ahead of you. And what you need to do is those people who are ahead of you, you go to them after class. Hey, my name is such and such. You want to study? Don't be afraid. It's no disgrace to be behind on day one or day 10 or day 100. Where are you on day 300? And so, you know, I think that we're going to have to sort of talk turkey. And here's one, my last point, because I know we've been talking a long time and I'm going to get the hook at some point. Here's one thing I want to say back to you, Glenn, and back to you, John. And here's one place where I think that we do differ. Black people in America have caught a lot of hell, still catch a lot of hell, and to create a better society, it seems to me that we're going to have to do some, we're going to have to look at the, 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 the complicated reality. Black people have caught a lot of hell, but you know what? Black people have also been the beneficiaries of a tenacious anti-racism struggle. You know, people talk, people shouldn't, let's go back to history. People talk about racism. Yes, there's been racism. There's also been anti-racism. Let's not forget that. Let's not forget the black people who've engaged in anti-racist struggle. Let's not forget the white people who have engaged in anti-racist struggle. We can't forget any of this. It's going to take a complicated, it's going to take a lot of complicated thinking and hard thinking. There are going to be trade-offs. They're constantly going to be trade-offs. And what I say for intellectuals, intellectuals have to be willing to engage the full complexity and be willing to be candid and say straight out when there are trade-offs. Be willing to argue propositions, be willing to reconsider propositions. That, that's basically where I am at this point. All right. Well, we have been here for a while. Uh, usually we cut it at 60 minutes. I think we've gone 90 minutes tonight. And uh, we're grateful, uh, Randy, for giving the sign. His book is called Say It Out Loud. This is the great Randall Kennedy, law professor, Harvard University, outspoken uh, defender of free speech. We didn't even talk about that. We didn't talk about that, but uh, I saw you being interviewed somewhere, and uh, you were uh, magisterial, I thought, in your uh, balance, as you've shown here in this conversation, and closely reasoned uh, defense of the basic pr principles of our liberal order. Uh, so again, thanks, uh, Randy. Thanks, John. Uh, John and I will be back in two weeks. 
we're going to be talking about Simone. Simone was my obstreperous student who uh, I gave an assignment. I said, assess the race writings of Glenn Lowry over the last 40 years. Randy, these students tore into me, man. I got 30 of them. I, I, why did I tell them to write that? What, what, what motivated me to give them an open invitation to, uh, to rip into me? And they did. And, and Simone, in particular, that's a pseudonym, uh, was especially, especially effective. At, and and we, we're going to take her on in the, her defenses of structural racism and, and whatnot. Because if allow me a point of privilege, the Anatomy of Racial Inequality 2002, which is being reissued by Harvard University Press in the 20th anniversary edition, lays down a rigorous theory of structural racism, which I almost forgot. <laughs> I'm so mad at Black Lives Matter that I almost forgot the book that I wrote in 2002. Uh, anyway, that's a prelude a preview of what we're going to be talking about next week. Thanks, John. Thanks, Randy. Fellows, be well. Thanks, guys. Good night, everybody. Bye-bye.